Oh, what day is this? Love Talk Radio. It's time for the Hadit.com Radio Show. Hadit.com Radio is an in-depth look at all things VA. If you need help with the VA, log on to Hadit.com. Now, here's your host, Gerald Kutcher. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, on this uh, 25th day of April, I think, 2019. And we're here with our co-host, Jay Basser, uh, that's John Stacy, and uh, today our guest speakers are uh, Dr. Craig Bash and uh, Bill Krieger. Uh, Bill's on here with us right now, and uh, uh, we're waiting on Dr. Bash to get out of the ER there. He's working on a patient, I think. But anyway, he'll be along here shortly. Uh, <laughs> how you doing, Bill? I'm getting much better, thanks. <laughs> Things well, are going reasonably well. Well, I got to tell yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it wasn't me that Dr. Bass was operating on. <laughs> okay, well, that might be good. He was doing. He was reducing reducing an open fracture. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. oh mercy. <laughs> oh Doctor Bash had written a Bash Bulletin concerning the VA and the reduction. Did you get a chance to read that, Bill? Yes. <clears throat> yes I did. He shared it with me. We um shared okay. some ideas on it uh for tonight. Um yeah. He's saying that he's experiencing an increase in the number of cases of veterans coming to him who are facing either a reduction in evaluation of a disability or severance of service connection. And uh, our concern is that that, um, the veterans often aren't well prepared to defend themselves about these sort of adversarial actions. And there were a a couple of things that Dr. Bash was pointing to um, that can help prevent VA from reducing the evaluation or perhaps save service connection from being terminated. And that's uh, some of the things we wanted to go over tonight with everyone. There's, um, I did a little bit of background again, just to make sure, because a lot of the, uh, a lot of my experience with the court is now getting to be somewhat uh, old, (laughs) like me. (laughs) So I wanted to take the time, and I did, to to go back and look at some of the earlier precedents that were established in our oversight court, and to compare them to current case law and see uh, do those original decisions still bear weight. And I was very pleased to see how many times the court would, uh, as it's adding new precedent, would continue to rely upon the precedent established from the earlier cases. So those, those earlier decisions of the court reversing typically, um, actions to sever service connection or reduce evaluations are still good. 
and they're still being used and cited by the court itself when they review this topic. <clears throat> and I, I think that the best defense is the evidence. Um, medicine um, provides opinions, and the opinion is only good as the person reviewing it, and it relies substantially on their intent. Now, I'm not satisfied from my experience that the individuals conducting the examinations or the individuals making the rating decisions adequately understand that a reduction or a severance is intended to be extremely difficult to achieve. Congress wrote the laws that way. It's just not a typical situation the tie goes to the runner. You know, additional hurdles and burdens, uh, particularly if the disability has been in effect for some time, that VA adjudicators must satisfy before making the reduction. And uh, I was pleased to see the court still stands on the premise that before, if, if VA makes a reduction without observance of the governing regulations, the court typically will reverse the decision at initio, meaning from the beginning. So if VA went forward with a reduction and you've had an appeal in place for seven, ten years, if VA violated the procedures, the law requires VA to reinstate that disability back to the date it was reduced. It's to be a restoration, not an increase. I've seen a number of mistakes in my experience where VA will propose to reduce, effectuate a reduction, veteran makes an appeal, this, the uh, reduction is reversed, effective with the current rating decision, and, and that is absolutely wrong. If a reduction is reversed, it's reversed all the way back to the effective date when it was reduced so that the veteran is not harmed. Now, subsequently, after that, in some circumstances, if VA is persuaded, convinced that a reduction is appropriate, they are free then to continue to develop evidence to justify that reduction. And so um, it becomes very important to get good medical evidence in the record to explain why a reduction should not be made or why severance should not be achieved. Um, the weakest point typically has been in the past the failure to provide due process. Congress made it very clear that before uh, VA effectuates a loss of benefits that 
due process must be provided. Now, that's, and most people hear the word due process, and they think of the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, which gives all of our citizens the right of due process. Well, that's exactly where this comes from. The Fifth um, uh, Amendment of the Constitution states that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Congress decided that if a veteran is going to lose or reduce payments, the veteran must have an opportunity to object and to provide evidence to persuade VA that that loss should not be um, effectuated. And also, the veteran must have time a proposal must be made to allow the veteran time not only to oppose the adverse action, but also to adjust his standard of living so that he can transition to the lower income if it turns out to be necessary. Many of the reversals that I've not only witnessed or advocated for, but reversed myself in making decisions, were because the effective date of the loss of income was prior to the 60-day notice of such reduction. So you have to tell the veteran what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, and give it to the veteran in the form of a proposal. And the veteran is allowed 60 days. If that 60 days is not provided, then that loss is reinstated, pure and simple. So I've caught a number of instances where that was not done. And I wanted to make certain that everyone is aware of that. Now, VA covers due process in the manual. Here I go with the numbers again. <laughs> M211, Part 1, Chapter 2, Section A. Now, that, that provides the instructions to the VA employees for the provisions of due process and how it applies and what VA employees are required to do if they do choose to undertake to reduce someone's benefits. Okay. Now, Bill, I have a question here. Yes. I think it falls kind of along in in with our topic. Suppose you go to the VA and and the writer or the writer looks at your claim and says, "Look, uh, we know you're uh, according to the 38 CFR, you should be rated a hundred percent. But however, we feel 
you're 40% responsible for your ailment. Uh, so rather than come back later on and reduce you, we're just going to give you 60% now. Does that, is that something that crops up? It seems like I've, I've talked to veterans in the past, and I don't remember the details, that that's the way it was presented to them. Is that anything to that? Uh, generally, no. Okay. And, and uh, here's why I'm um, – now there's a, a number of circumstances that could place a veteran – into the position of, well, how much of the total disability is VA responsible for paying? Okay? Yes. yes. Now, the rating schedule provides that if you are granted service connection on the basis of aggravation, okay, aggravation means that you had the disability before you entered service and during service it became worse. So the regulations provide in that circumstance mm-hmm. that if you have, for example, um, at the end of your service a 50% disability, but 10% of that disability existed prior to service, then your compensation is reduced by that 10% because that degree preexisted. Okay, now, but what if the VA uh, or the mm-hmm. military, uh, when you went in, was aware of this, um, uh, this uh, ailment, whatever it be, and wavered it? Now, does that put the responsibility back on them? Well, you use a specific term, waiver. And yep. I'm going to interpret that to mean that they were aware that you had a certain diagnosis, but they found that that diagnosis would not prevent you from performing your duties. And so they found you qualified for military service In that circumstance, that means that that disability was 0% disabling. Because because if it weren't, they would not give you straight ones across the pulleys, P-U-L-H-E-S, remember the profile? And they all have to be a one. And when when the, at entry, when that, examiner said you were fit for duty, that means you had a diagnosis perhaps, but not a disability. Okay. Some examples might be scoliosis, because scoliosis might be um, mild enough in degree that neither the patient nor the person examining them knew it was present. And so at that point, when they certified you fit for service means you did not have a disability at the time of entrance and active service. So when I was making these decisions, my 
general rule, and it was not codified anywhere other than I'm about to quote from the regulation, was that if you're examining interest, they didn't find any compensable disabilities, then it was 0% disabling at entry in service, and no deduction from your valuation is to be made. Right? Now, what was really uh, important, In litigation in the court, the court ruled that the eggshell plaintiff rule applies to VA adjudications. Now, in law, um, this is a, a well-known argument. If, if you and I are... Um, having a disagreement, right? And out of anger, you take and um, hit me upside the head, right? Just, just to get my attention, okay? And my skull is fractured and causes brain damage, okay? Now, it's tempting to try to defend your actions when you hit me and say, wait a minute, part of this overall disability isn't my fault. You had an eggshell for a skull. It was very weak. Okay? And if you didn't have that eggshell skull, it wouldn't have fractured and you wouldn't be as stable. So I'm only responsible for part of that liability. Well, in law, that is absolutely no defense. No. It's called the eggshell skull rule or eggshell plaintiff rule. You take the plaintiff as you find them. So whether or not I had an eggshell skull is not relevant. You hit me in the head. I'm brain damaged, you fully compensate me for all of the damage. Now, I was, I was deeply involved in a case in the court some years ago um, called Cohen, a fellow named uh, Douglas Cohen. And in Cohen, the government was trying to deny compensation for PTSD. And their argument was that, no, he had a personality disorder, and that's really responsible for most of the disability. So we're not paying him any compensation. And that was Cohen v. Brown at 10 Vet App 128 in 1997. And the court went through a number of precedents from other venues saying that this eggshell shell rule applies to mental health cases. It applies to federal cases because it's extant in rulings in other courts and other jurisdictions and federal law. And that 
it applies to VA compensation. And his vulnerability of having a personality disorder does not excuse VA from fully compensating the veteran for all of the resulting damage. I remember at oral argument, I was seated before the judges, and the attorney for the government was trying to diminish the effects of incoming rocket mortar fire. Uh, she presented to the court the argument, well, even the veteran admitted that it's only harassing fire. Okay. <laughs> uh, Cohen was stationed at Da Nang. Do we all remember the nickname for Da Nang? It was nicknamed Rocket City because of all the enemy rockets that they were firing in there from time to time. So, um, they wanted to say that they're not responsible because they had a pre-existing personality disorder, and the court wrote the book on this issue and made clear that that is not an acceptable argument for veteran adjudications. That once you accepted him, you're responsible for him. And if you took someone with an undiagnosed personality disorder and put them in Danang and subjected them to rocket and mortar attacks, you're responsible for all the damages. I, I remember at one point, one of, um, it was Judge Farley was on that panel, and Judge Farley leaned over to the microphone and said, you mean if the rocket or mortar hits you, it's a stressor? And if it misses you, it's not? <laughs> and at that moment, I kind of felt like, we might have uh, uh, we might have a winner here. <laughs> now the regulation I was uh, going to quote from is 38 CFR 4.22, rating of disabilities aggravated by active service, and that provides that the rating will reflect only the degree of disability over and above that existing at the time of it. So. If someone does come in and is allowed to come in, let's say with a 10% pest planus, just meaning it's symptomatic, and then by the end of service has a 30% pest planus and it's disabling, then the veteran would be paid 20%. Now, the two important cases, one, you deduct the from the current, uh, present degree of disability, if ascertainable, the disability existing at the time of entrance in service. So if it wasn't ascertained, it's zero. If it was measurable and you can determine with accuracy what the degree of disability was at entry, then yes, you can deduct it from the total evaluation. One exception, unless the disability is 100%. If your service connected is disability, there is no deduction for pre-existence. So if you had a 10% uh, depression when you went in and you came out with a 50, you're getting 40. If it becomes 100, you get 100. Is that very clear? <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Very important. Um, and, of course, this would also apply for secondary service connection. You see, if, if disability A was incurred in service, it's a, this, a service-connected disability, and it aggravates a secondary disability, then you would be paid the difference, if ascertainable, unless it's total, in which case you get it all. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Good. We don't want to That's see anybody out there. That's pretty actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. Good. Good. You had me up up to where that poor guy got slapped upside his eggshell head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, I get your point there. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, well established in tort law. And our oversight court extended it to VA adjudications as well. Um, sometimes you have a hard time helping the decision makers understand that. Um, and what I did in preparation for those pleadings in the court in this case, what I did was to take a look at the VA records that uh, they received in response to their proposed rule. In other words, VA had amended the rating schedule for mental disorders in 1996. Uh, before they made that amendment, they, of course, made a proposal to amend the rating schedule for mental disorders. And they got responses from the public. And so I did a Freedom of Information Act request I obtained the copies of those comments that VA had received from the public and made sure that I read those and understood them. And uh, DAV made an excellent uh, comment in response to VA's proposal uh, for the rule change and had put in a very well-reasoned and well-articulated discussion from very well-known psychiatrists on how it is impossible to apportion a degree of disability in mental health cases between the acquired disorder and an underlying personality trait or disorder because they interact. And VA could have said, no, we can figure that out. Our doctors are so smart. They know what the features of a personality disorder are, and they know what PTSD is, and they know how they're different, and so our doctors can tell how much of it's due to personality and how much is due to an acquired disorder. Nonsense. Um, VA didn't do that. VA said, you're right. That, and they said, we don't do that. We do not deduct a degree of disability for a coexisting condition if we're not able to distinguish the difference. And they said, our rules require us to grant the benefit of the doubt to the veteran so that all signs and symptoms 
will be attributed to the service-connected condition. You know, people, people in the business don't often take the time to actually read the Federal Register when VA proposes a rule change so you understand and get some insight into why they're making the change. Get some insight into what, they, what the thought process was and why they came down one way or the other. Now, at that point, VA could have chosen to disagree with DAD and say, no, we know how to apportion the disability, but they did not do that. They said, no, we give benefit of the doubt to the veteran and attribute all signs and symptoms of mental illness to the service-connected disability. Got to tell you, I have encountered people throughout the system who never heard of this court precedent, never applied the eggshell skull rule, and even some of the people in central office who are responsible for oversight uh, for the compensation service would argue with me about what I just said because they still believe they can. (laughs) So... now, uh, Bill, wouldn't this uh, kind of fall into the similar category as reduction of benefits? It can Some happen. of these same rules, couldn't they it apply? Can happen. It can happen, and I've seen it. Um, of the VA review process, if we are... Uh, giving a veteran an exam, and the result is we're going to increase, no problem. But if we're going to decrease, then the examination report must tell us how do we know it is improved. And when I say improved, I don't mean just Uh, the elbow bends further today than it used to. So now it's only 10% disabling instead of 20. Okay? I mean that VA and the the examiners explained and VA recognizes exactly how and why we can tell that there not only was there improvement, but it is a material improvement. In other words, not just a little bit, but a material degree. Secondly, that this represents the degree of disability that is sustained. So first we have to show the improvement is material. Then we have to show that the material improvement is sustained, which means it's not just a good day, it means it represents the chronic level of disability at this time. Now, after we've decided that there is improvement, that it's material improvement, and that it's sustained improvement, now we have to show that it was achieved under the ordinary circumstances of daily life, including employment. In other words, the intent is we're not going to reduce a veteran who for the last Oh, two years since his last exam 
has been at bed rest. <laughs> okay? Well, that's not how we evaluate disabilities. It's, it's we evaluate, for example, the mailman delivers mail. We are to evaluate his knee at the end of the workday under the ordinary circumstances of daily life, including employment. That's where this system most often breaks down because with VA's electronic rating system, it's called Veterans Benefits Management System hyphen rating, VBMSR. That's the computer program. And it has a calculator built into it. So you choose a diagnostic code, you put that disability in, and it will prompt you to enter the into the program. So if it bends, uh, let's say, let's say the shoulder abducts halfway, 45 degrees, okay, uh, that's one disability. But we have to show that that's sustained under ordinary circumstances that they would live. So we want to examine him after he's been at work all day. Maybe he's uh, delivered furniture, okay? That would have a huge impact. So we have to make certain that it's not a result of rest, and it's not just a temporary remission, but it represents the chronic level of disablement that's where the system examiners aren't prompted to. The DBQ doesn't ask. Raiders, remember, they've got to get a lot of cases done every day, don't take the time to conduct the analysis. They simply transpose the data from the DBQ into the computer and typically accept what the computer tells them the evaluation should be. That's the weakest point. And if we rebut those simplistic exams with more comprehensive evidence and a better medical explanation, we have a chance of reversing that proposed reduction. You know, uh, uh, Bill... Uh, yeah. I hate to interrupt you here, but Go ahead. you brought up a point here I think might be important uh, where, you know, you were referencing the mailman. Uh, if you want to get a true reading of his knees or evaluation mm-hmm. of his knees, mm-hmm. it should be done at the end of the day after he's walked all day long and he comes hobbling in, you know. Exactly right. Uh, exactly right. And I, now, I, had, whenever, I remember. Yes, sir. Yeah. But what I'm getting at here, I have to go down for oxygen certification all the time. And they do that at rest. They don't walk you across the floor. Of course, mm-hmm. they're not going to walk me across. I can't walk across the floor. <laughs> I mean... If I could, 
They don't walk you across the floor, then come back and take your O2 saturation. They take it at rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, aren't we, are we talking two different uh, uh, situations here, or are we talking the same criteria? They're very related related circumstances. And when I was representing veterans as a service officer, I would always have my veteran come in and visit me before the exam. I would make a point of that. Yes. I wanted to make sure that we do not give a distorted picture to the examiner. The examiner needs to know what that disability is like under the ordinary circumstances of daily life, meaning active, okay? So if you, for example, back to the knees, if you're being scheduled for a VA knee exam and you sleep all night, you get up in the morning, you drive a ride over to the medical facility and you sit down in the waiting room for an hour or so, Yes. You are distorting that disability picture because Correct. you're creating yeah. the circumstances where you have limited your activities to the minimum amount, rest and sleep, for the examiner to examine. You owe it to that examiner to be active and stay active prior to the exam so the examiner can see what it's really like. That's the intent. So I'd tell a guy, you know, mow the grass the day before you go. (laughs) Let us see what it's really like, you know? (laughs) Yeah, they want to evaluate you at your best possible condition instead of evaluating at what it actually is after mm-hmm. you've been out working or, you know, yes, put stress so. on all your joints or or mm-hmm. whatever, we, you know. We are so often shoved into that conundrum, into that trap, uh, because we're not aware, okay? Hopefully some people will hear now, and they will understand you need to be up and active, what your life is usually like so that the examiner will be able to see what it's like when you're active. Now, if you've seen DBQs on joints, you'll notice that there are a couple of... uh, One is the initial range of motion. How far does it bend when the doctor measures it? The next one is how far does it bend after repetitive motion testing? And then the third one is What's it like on use and during flare-ups? That's the one that we're supposed to use for the evaluation if it's worse. Now, the breakdown in the system is that the examiners are typically saying, well, I don't know what it's like during a flare-up because he's not having one. Or I don't know what it's like on use because it's not on use at the moment. And so they don't put in a value anything different from the initial range of motion. Now, the 
you might have witnessed the, what I call the three repetition test. Move it three times and see if it gets worse. Well, I think any of us who has arthritis realizes that if you move it three times, you're not making it worse. You're freeing it up. <laughs> you're working it loose, are you not? That's my experience. And so I, I've never been a fan of that free motion test. It was created just after the court's ruling in DeLuca. In uh, DeLuca v. Brown, 8 Vet Act 202, that was decided in 1995. And that's when the court... The court didn't create this test. The court said, VA, you have a regulation, okay, and you're required to obey your own regulation. So in a sense, yes, DeLuca was a precedent because the court never had reviewed uh, 38 CFR 4.40. And so there was no lawful precedent. So it's a precedent in that the court, for the first time, reviewed the regulation and said to VA, you have to obey your own regulation. Well, that regulation was in effect since the 1930s, okay? And the court didn't create the regulation. VA did decades ago. So, but anyhow, the, the court made it clear in Duluth that, um, you know, you have to um, describe uh, pain on use. Um, okay. It, I believe yeah, we have Dr. Bash in here now. Dr. Bash, you here? No, I don't guess he is. Uh, okay. We have a that's caller here. Hey. Huh? That's not, that's not Dr. Bash. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to point this out, that DeLuca said VA have to comply with different regulations. That was in 1995. I had never seen any training modules on this concept until 2010. <laughs> 15 years later, <laughs> the first time I saw VA actually conducting training on this concept. And in order to comply with it, their resolution was, we're going to bend it three times and see how far it moves after we bend it three times. I uh, don't think I've ever seen an examination where the examiner said, <laughs> measured it to be worse after loosening it up. <laughs> but there was a, you know, we don't, we don't um, there's been a whole series of decisions on joints and uh, motions. Um, Mitchell v. Shinseki came out in 2011, um, and it sort of it sort of went against Vesson somewhat because you have to be able to quantify the additional loss in degrees, okay, to be objective. Uh, but then we had um, Kuwaya. I call it that because some wrestler had his name spelled that way. V. Uh, McDonald in 28 that act in 2016. Now, this was just for a painful joint. You know, the question is, well, the regulations at 4.59 says that you have to test the joint in weight-bearing. 
Right. So they and a few other things as well. So VA amended the DBQ to add those additional questions, uh, weight bearing compared to the other side, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, so it's important to cover those bases. Now, if an examiner were to take the time and explain how and why they reach a conclusion that it is additionally restricted under those circumstances, then the rater would be compelled to use it. If, for example, um, you had your own doctor conduct it and explain to VA why your shoulder can move um, 80 degrees from your side, but on use and during flare-ups, it only goes halfway, and the doctor can explain how he knows that, and VA would be compelled to use it. So that's how we can use medical evidence to prevent the reductions because they just go too fast. Uh, now, we haven't touched on severance. Severance is far more difficult. It should be very rare. But I have seen it, and I've seen it done incorrectly. Um, again, the courts had a whole series of decisions on this topic, and if it is severed without observance of applicable law, then again, it is void ab initio and must be reinstated back to the date it was severed. And like I said, that you know, I, I can remember that back in uh, well, back in the 1990s when that was very clear in the court. And I, uh, there was a case, uh, Hedgepeth um, v. Wilkie, just here in, in 2018, in 30-bit act, which goes back and reinforces it again. Okay, using the same law that had already been in effect before. Um, now, what was unique about Hedgepath, and I want to touch on this because I've seen it before. VA was sort of trying to re accomplish a severance without saying so. What they were doing is saying, well, you've got a new diagnosis, and you don't have the symptoms that comport with this uh, degree of disability that we previously gave you. Well, by attempting to um, apply reduction, rules for reduction, instead of rules for severance, okay, they were taking the veteran to zero percent based on a change in diagnosis rather than demonstrating material improvement in the condition. And so and I've seen, I've seen decisions, and I've, I've helped some folks, other raiders and what have you, who, who get confused between the difference between severance and reduction. Or maybe some weren't quite as benevolent as we would hope and, and actually are attempting to um, minimize compensation or eliminate compensation by characterizing it as reduction rather than severance because it's a more difficult test to achieve severance. Give a real quick example. 
a rather well-experienced decision review officer came to me one day and asked for me to second sign their decision to sever a disability. Well, once I read what that person had written, I tried to help them understand you cannot do this. And here's why. They were, it was a question of the evaluation of the needs. And the veteran had been assigned an evaluation for limited painful motion for arthritis and a separate evaluation for a torn meniscus, both compensable. Well, VA's manual, M21, said you can't have both. You cannot have an evaluation for a meniscus and any other evaluation of the knee on any other basis. Manual said that. So what I, what the Raider was actually doing was saying they were going to sever service connection for the meniscus and rate for the evaluation instability because that gave a, a higher overall evaluation. No, can't do it. You can't do it for this reason. The rating that granted those separate evaluations was entered before VA put that additional restriction in the manual. So you cannot say, okay, we're going to sever this because it's clear and unmistakable error to grant it because the manual says so today. If you're going to attempt that, you have to demonstrate that the grant, when it was made, was clear and unmistakable error based on the rules at the time of the grant, not subsequent changes, okay? So that didn't happen. Now, of course, since then, um, the court overruled the manual. VA, see that? That's another danger. VA put things in the manual instead of publishing it in the Federal Register, and so um, you don't really get this opportunity for notice and comment as you would if they were properly uh, complying with the Administrative Procedures Act. So now um, the court is reviewing manual changes because VA is using them as substantive rules and deciding whether that rule change should be permitted. And in the case of this uh, meniscus disability, the court reversed VA's policy and informed VA that, yes, you can have separate disabilities, but you cannot, um, you have to conduct the analysis and determine whether or not you would have overlying symptoms. So what I mean is if the meniscus is causing instability, it would be improper to give the veteran two ratings for instability, one for instability and one for the meniscus that's causing the instability. That would be pyramidic. But that's not what the rating schedule necessarily searches for when it comes to evaluating a meniscus. It's uh, swelling inflammation. Okay. Um, 
not necessarily instability. So I I checked. I haven't seen that uh, VA take any action to um, correct that. <laughs> we'll wait and see. I think they'll probably be correcting that in the near future. Now, since I brought it up, the 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 guidance for severance, I mentioned it briefly, but I want to stress it. VA cannot sever service connection without finding that the grant of service connection was clear and unmistakable error. There can be absolutely no debate. It, it must be shown in the record before the adjudicator. When they decide to sever, they have to point to the evidence and the rules extent at the time of the grant and say the grant was wrong. One big difference between a CUE clear and unmistakable error in favor of a veteran versus clear and unmistakable error in favor of the government. If a veteran says you did a clear and unmistakable error in 1970, the burden is on the veteran to demonstrate undebatably that that was wrong based on the evidence and rules extent at the time of that prior decision. Unlike that, if VA is now attempting to sever service connections, VA can rely on more recently developed evidence to, to substantiate the act of severance. That's one crucial difference between the two. Now, I mentioned earlier that medical evidence is substantially an opinion. And it depends on the intent of the medical expert, the expertise of the expert, and how they review and consider the evidence of record. So sometimes I've seen attempts to sever service connection based on some pretty sketchy opinions. If, if the rater wants to sever service connection based on an examiner who says that diagnosis is wrong, that examiner has a burden to explain why it's wrong. You see? And in, in that way, um, you can proceed. So the weakest link in that chain is often the rationale to explain why the prior diagnosis was wrong. Not the current diagnosis, but the prior diagnosis. In other words, I see the examiner saying, well... You granted service connection for PTSD, but he doesn't have PTSD. He has a personality disorder. And stop. That's not good enough for me. And it shouldn't be good enough for any reader. They have to explain, you mean he never had PTSD? You know, because of PTSD, maybe the PTSD is in remission for the moment. Maybe the symptoms have subsided somewhat. And the features of the personality are today a little more prominent. Okay. So don't tell me he doesn't have he, he has a different diagnosis now unless you explain to me why the change and whether the prior diagnosis was error or not. Now I'm skipping the citations because we only got five minutes left. 
Until we get a little more than that, I give it a little extra time. I give it a little extra time tonight. Go ahead. Oh, cool. Cool. Now, VA has, for the most part, put in the manual most of the proper guidance. Um, it it has uh, evolved gradually, and as I mentioned before, um, it takes time. Remember, DeLuca was. They started teaching DeLuca 15 years after the court ruled it. <laughs> but I want to finish with this one decision. It's so important. Murphy v. Shinseki, 26 Vet App, 510-2014. Very, very important ruling. And I checked today, and I reviewed every potentially relevant space that I could look in the manual, VA has not incorporated Murphy into the manual. So we're going to have to bring it to their attention if this happens to you. The problem was this. The veteran had a 10% rating. He filed a claim for increase and was given a 30% rating. While on appeal, he continued his appeal, VA was, he wanted more. He wanted 50 or 70, okay? VA gave another exam, the examiner finds symptoms warranting a 10%. And so they reduced him to 10%. Court said you can't do that, okay? They said that, you know, that, will, that kind of behavior will have a chilling effect on the appeal process. Veterans will be afraid to take their appeal because they're afraid of losing benefits already awarded. And so the court said you cannot reduce an evaluation beneath that granted by the rating on appeal. So when the VA granted that 30% increase from 10 to 30 the appeal is no longer a question of whether you should have 10 or 30. The appeal only embraces whether or not you should have greater than 30. And you may not consider a question of less than 30. So that is really important. And it's something we'll, we'll have to advocate for because I've not seen that formalized into the manual yet. You know, Bill, I've, I've heard time and again veterans afraid to go back and appeal the rating. Like, you know, if they're getting 30%, they're afraid to, to ask for more because they're afraid they're going to lose a portion of that 30, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and but if it, if a, for instance, if it's on their ears and they're 30%, uh, the examiner might say, well, your ears are only 20% now. They're afraid mm-hmm. they might lose that, uh, lose 10% or so. Um, yep, I've seen that too. I have. Um, and, and in some cases, and I'm talking a long time ago now, um, veteran comes in, we're going to have a personal hearing at the Board of Veterans' Appeals, we sit down and look at the evidence and I say, okay, 
Now you realize here, this examination report that I have, or the VA has, okay, it says you have a 10% disability. Now you're getting paid 30. Uh, do we want to go forward or not? Uh, what's the risk and what's the potential for gain? At this point, now this is in the past, um, we have a chance of, of having it reduced. Yes, that's a possibility. Do you have any evidence that I can use to give Board of Veterans Appeals today that says that should not be made? You know, like you have a, a hearing test that comports with all the requirements that says it's a 50% disability? No. Well, then, uh, I, can't, I can't promise you the outcome. You make the choice, but my job is to tell you as your advocate, your representative, my job was to tell them, here's the potential gains, here's the possible losses, here's the risks. You make the decision. And a number of veterans would stop at that point and withdraw the appeal uh, because they were afraid of that reduction. So the court was absolutely right when it said that this has a chilling effect on the appeals process. And Murphy, you know, from now on, well, this was actually decided in 2014. Murphy, Murphy in 2014. I've had, so, um, I've had reps doing the same thing. I mean, you say, well, if you file this other claim or you appeal this other claim, that leaves your folder wide open for a new fresh set of VAIs to look at it. And, you know, I, that used to happen all the time. They would open up uh, Bethany's claims file, and next thing you know, he's getting reduction letters. And that's happened pretty regularly over the years. It Hopefully has. It has. Back in 2009 in, in Comer, um, the Fed Circuit said uh, the VA disability compensation system is not meant to be a trap for the unwary. You know, they keep trying to say <laughs> you're not supposed to be adversarial, you know. <laughs> it says it right in the regulations. It says it. Yes. And it says it attitude of writing officers right in the, in the part three. Uh, but what's the well, in, in, in the instance of reason. your ears or your hearing, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. I wouldn't think, you know, if you were getting 10 or 20%, I wouldn't think you would put in for a request for a higher rating unless you'd already been to an air doctor and had new test results. Yes. I mean, that, that don't make sense yes. to me. Uh, unless you, yeah, you had I understand new... that. I do. I understand that and I understand why. Because treatment of a disability is done by medical professionals for treatment purposes. Medicine as practiced for VA adjudications is not the same thing. And there's no reasonable right. basis to assume that it is. Right. Uh, here, your, your doctor can treat you for a hearing loss and can yes. say you will benefit from amplification and prescribe for you hearing aids. And you get hearing aids and they help, okay? But if that specific decibel losses do not satisfy VA's definition of hearing loss for VA purposes, you don't get compensated for it. 
See? So it's they got they got a charge. And that's you know that's not real unusual. It's it's not you know well it is somewhat unusual. But the practice of medicine is different from VA adjudication medicine. Take for example the spine. In medicine, you have three segments. You have the cervical, the thoracic, and the lumbar spine. Three parts. Mm -hmm. Okay. In VA adjudication medicine, you do not. In VA adjudication yeah, medicine, two. you have the cervical and the thoracolumbar mm -hmm. spine. Only two, you see? Yep. Um, so when you're evaluating what's called intervertebral disc syndrome, and we have many veterans who are sort of connected for that, that term is no longer used in the practice of medicine. Okay, so examiners typically, when it gets to that, you know, that's evaluated based on how many weeks of bed rest your doctor has prescribed. Two problems. One, doctors don't use that term anymore. So typically doctors will check it. No, he doesn't have that because we don't use that anymore, but they don't explain it. And the other thing is they don't treat it with bed rest anymore. <laughs> they treat it with muscle relaxers, pain relievers, and stretching. <laughs> or surgery. <laughs> they don't treat it with bed rest. <laughs> so traction. nobody's going to get nobody. Yeah, traction. Nobody's going to get that sixty percent for intervertebral disc syndrome because or bed rest. They don't treat it that way, and they don't define it as such anymore. So that's another way that VA adjudication medicine is different from medical practice. That's why. Somebody, if you're going to get some help with your uh, evaluation of your disability, it's important to have on your side someone who understands both. Someone experienced not only in diagnosis and medicine and treatment, but also in the VA realm of adjudication medicine mm -hmm. so that they can understand and help you develop the evidence in the way that VA will understand it in accordance with their rules. That's why it's important to have your own. Hey, I got a question. Oh, oh, I forgot two things. One, protection. Protection, protection. Yeah. If it's been in effect, if service connection's been in effect for 10 years or more, it's protected. Unless it's fraud, VA cannot sever it. If an evaluation has been in effect for 20 years or more, it's protected, and VA cannot reduce it. That's I want to make sure. And again, I'm skipping the citations due to time. That's <laughs> right. Oh, count. So there, there's. That will do. Yeah, there, there's. Uh, hey, what? Dr. Bash didn't make it today. <laughs> That's all right. There have been times he, he, I didn't. I didn't make it. He didn't. He didn't. I didn't. <laughs> well, take a throat lozenger and keep going, Bill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, protection rules. Um, you might as well quote them. Um, protected mm -hmm. ratings. 20-year uh, protection for evaluation is 38 CFR 3.951B. 10-year 
protection for service connection is 38 CFR 3.957. VA has specifically put them in the manual at M211, Part 3, Subpart 4, Chapter 8, Section C, Protected Ratings. So it's right there in front of them. <laughs> they shouldn't miss it. <laughs> All right, let me let, let me ask a million dollar question to the uh, in okay. hypothet- hypothetical sort of class. Okay, so for example, a veteran files a claim uh, 25 years ago for a condition. Maybe let's just go with hypertension, and the VA okay. could not find his records. They couldn't find his records, mm-hmm. and so they deny the claim. So he tries to reopen the claim, say 10 years later. And eventually they find the records, and they when they find the records, they go back and they look and he goes to the CMP exam, and the CMP exam uses the information that record, he gets rated 10%. Uh-huh. Okay. But the effective date they give him is the date that he reopened the claim. Okay. So if he actually knows what he's doing, if there's a, what, what's that statute, 3.156C? Because of the records weren't available, what's the deal with that? If they have a, if right, 3. that's the rule. Three point one five six C. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. They did revise it. And they, yeah. Yeah, they, they revised it. Yeah. What's the revision? The, the the revision, what that means is that your your service records were acquired, and mm-hmm. the evidence that was in those records. Predicated mm-hmm. the grant, predicated the reopening and the grant. So, mm-hmm. like for example, in your hypertension case, mm-hmm. let's say it was denied because you don't have hypertension 25 years ago, mm-hmm. and then 10 years later you do have hypertension. Right. Well, one elevated blood pressure reading in service once we acquire those records may or may mm-hmm. not represent the onset because it can be transitionally elevated by a variety right. of reasons like stress or certain medications might have that effect or illnesses mm-hmm. might have the effect of temporarily raising your blood pressure and you don't really have hypertension it's just a transitional right. variation okay that's normal for the circumstance at that time. So in the circumstance where those service records establish the diagnosis, hypertension is a cardiovascular condition. It's defined, it's deemed by VA as chronic. So once it, mm-hmm. VA is satisfied that the evidence shows hypertension was present in service and subsequent mm-hmm. manifestations, no matter how remote, are service-connected. And so, in that circumstance, having hypertension in those service records, it would go Mm -hmm. back to the original claim in accordance with the regulation. In other cases where the veteran maybe had an indication but didn't have hypertension, that wouldn't Mm -hmm. show that hypertension had an onset in service and so, mm-hmm. you, maybe, maybe not. So well, help this know, phrase from a, how how would how how would you would you read this phrase from a C and P examiner? 
I bet you had several. Anyway, actually, so we're not hypothetical ahead. anymore, right? <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm just yeah. I'm just going to be on basically yeah. Just the veteran had several <laughs> episodes of hypertensive breathing while in service, and several episodes. during the okay. and was clearly manifest after during the first post-service year. Oh, it was. I'd have granted it. <laughs> no doubt in my mind, I'd have granted that. Um, Just be glad you know, you know, work in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, you know, the, the court was asked about that very thing um, in a Hello. Ah. Hello. We lost him. I think his phone might have went down. Oh yeah. Well, there's a beer on the corner. We've been hacked. You must get him on a new website, Jerry. Well, might have to. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can't find it. In him. there, Bill? Give us a call back. Your show's still on. It dropped. It dropped him. Well, if we'll call back, we can, uh, we can get him back on. That's fine. We ain't worried about that. We had a good show. Yeah, I learned some new words show. today, though, Gerald. Huh? I learned some new words today. I learned some new words today. Four-letter words? In, uh, in <laughs> initio. In initio. I wrote that one down. Yes, I did. In initio. You know what that it means? It seemed like I've heard that word before. Did you just say that it? That means, but he said it in initio. That means back to the start of. Back to the start of. Yeah. Oh, here he is. I guess I got it. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. In initio. There he is. Yeah. How you doing? I like that How you word. doing, Bill? <laughs> We're glad you joined us. Yeah, if I can just finish and say, um, they said they're not going to go retroactive because he didn't cooperate, he didn't tell us dates and places. And the court said, wait a minute, when you when you got his service records, <laughs> you know, you had some records, and it told you what unit he was in and where the unit was and when he was there. So you could have looked them up anytime you wanted to. And so they ordered him to go back retroactively to the earlier claim. That's good. Finish that one. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. John, I got to come visit you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've studied all this stuff over the years. You know, being an advocate and working with a lot of veterans and stuff, and it's like, you know, listening to somebody with your knowledge about this whole system builds a breath of fresh air because you get a lot of people that think they know the system. And uh, yeah. I'll tell you, there's a couple of folks out there we talked to that may have forgotten more than these people that ever learned. So, I mean, it's really good. Yeah. Really good. Um, now, some rules on um, revisions of decisions that are unfavorable. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they have to be done by a certain level of expertise. 
uh, decision review mm-hmm. office or what have you, um, and or they must be um, signed off on by the service center manager um, right. or designee. Um, most often I've seen service center managers delegate that or in a given case when they're presented with a severance or reduction, they'll turn to a review officer that they know and they'll ask them. <laughs> I'll find off on it. I had some center managers come to me with, and their leadership management teams come to me and say, does this look right to you? <laughs> no. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> Not, uh, it was a, a long time. It was a long career. You know, I mean, how's the stress yeah, level with that kind of job, Bill? Monstrous. Um, the pressure. Monstrous. You know, I never saw a Raider fired for anything other than failing to meet the quota. Oh, no. Yeah. Really? You've got to meet, that's number one. You've got to meet that quota. And so that's a um, line out element, right? What they call it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the bottom, that's the bottom line there. You've got to stay above that board. No, I mean, that's how the government, that's, that's how they do it with the VA. You know, you've got certain, you know, you've got certain requirements and then they've got line out elements that you have to, mm-hmm. You know, that you have to meet any yeah. job, you yeah. know, and then they grade you on your performance, yeah. and I guess that determines how much of a bonus a person's going to get, you know? Well, it was, yeah, so, yeah, and, and um, yeah. Uh, I, I remember one time when uh, <laughs> was a, a union rep at this certain uh, regional office, and he he got a FOIA request and he got um, copies of the bonuses that the senior managers on the station had been paid. Oh, and really? And posted it, posted it on the bulletin board. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, well, uh... the bonuses of some of these people was much higher than the salaries of the employee that worked for them. My lands. That was a long time ago. But what I, are these people? I, I are they it. are they like G or what are they are they like GM fifteens or what? Yeah, family fifteens, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah, having said that, I, you know, I confess I got a bonus from time to time because I was the top producer on yeah. the station. So the, you know, management felt like that was Worthy of acknowledging. <laughs> hey, I got one every year. But, you know, <laughs> it was you know, certainly less than, you know, these. I mean, I think the biggest one I ever got was 2000 for that year. Yeah, that's about I right. Was, I was extremely grateful. I thought that was a lot of money. It was. <laughs> I had no idea what they were getting. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, I would say that I, yeah. I guess uh, twenty. I guess that was twenty seventeen or twenty sixteen, somewhere in there. Yeah. So when did you retire? When did you retire in eighteen or seventeen? I retired in eighteen. Yeah. Okay. I, um, how, how many years did you? Have? Yeah. Uh, well, I actually started 
as a service officer for the Marine Corps League volunteer. Uh-huh. And then I worked on getting uh, an accreditation. So VA accredited me in 1976. <laughs> and then I went to work for the state of Maryland. Um, I was a DVOP for a while and then a um, service officer. And eventually I became the supervisor of appeals for what was then the Maryland Veterans Commission. Now it's the Maryland Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, that's what uh, got me going to um, the Board of Veterans Appeals on a regular basis, representing appeals and oh, PEBs, uh, Board of Corrections and Military Records, Discharge Review Boards, got it all. Um, and then uh, came to admire the work that Paralyzed Veterans of America did, and I was uh, I was attracted to them. And um, so I started over as a service officer um, for Paralyzed Veterans. Then I became a appeals representative and a senior appeals representative. And then they transferred me over to the court, and I served as a veteran law specialist. Uh, for the court's vote pro bono program. I was reviewing and evaluating cases pending before the court and recruiting and training lawyers to uh, represent them. And uh, did that for about 15 years. I was admitted to practice. And uh, I divided my time between all those functions in the, in the appellate level. I was serving on committees at hospitals, uh, uh, serving on committees at central office. Um, I, got a, I got a very broad perspective, you know, from from many different angles and levels, and it, it, I think it helped shape me over the years. I always felt like God had a purpose for me. And then, uh, 2010, yeah, 2010. Um, I was hired at the um, Appeals Management Center to work the remands from the BVA and uh, started setting records. (laughs) But then one day, um, I looked at my supervisor and I said, "Uh, I'm going to go get a new ankle and I'm not coming back. It was... uh, just getting to be too much. Um, it's a long drive to D.C., and uh, they were only willing to give me a few days off a week. Um, so they had me driving to D.C. on a regular basis, which was quite a quite a quite a burden. It was quite painful and um, difficult. And uh, finally, I just decided, you know, <laughs> I got to start taking care of my health. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you did you did you retire there? Did you, did you go to furs or what, what? What did you do? Yeah, I retired. I retired. Yeah, and, okay. um, yeah, and of course, you know, I, not only my active time as a VA employee, but also you know they give you credit for four years in the Marine Corps too. So right. um, that that gave me enough a little pension to pay for the health insurance anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's about it. My wife retired from the VA back in thirteen, man. It's a, it, 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 it's pretty sad. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I ended at 13. I did. And, um, yeah, okay. Yeah. Made some friends, uh, stepped on some toes. <laughs> uh, I've done that. <laughs> tried to, tried to help these, uh, I call them kids because the, uh, people doing this are younger than my children. And, um, Tried to help him out as much as I could. There was, there was often a waiting line at my desk when I came in. <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but if you're, you know, when a person is good like that, then uh, they will, you know, they're everybody, everybody kind of, you know, goes toward the best person they, can, you know, they can get it done. And that's that's what happens. They kind of, you know, attribute toward the people like you and yourself, you know. So that's a, but. A, yeah, there's a lot of guys I, like it too, you know. Go ahead. I think what they appreciate most, my coworkers, my young coworkers, I, I think what they appreciate most is, you know, I always told them, you know, I can feed you corn or I can teach you to grow corn. And I said, now, here's where we find the answer to your question. And I would show them in the manual. I would show them the case from the court and say, now, remember this. You know, and and next time I expect you to be able to remember this and and look this up, you know, and learn it that way. And that's because yeah. you know. And some some would grumble. I take too much time with them, and I said, I look, you don't come to me and ask me to rate the case for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep. you come to me, it's because you want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> we call that a we call that a administrative consult. <laughs> uh, Bill, uh, are you yes. seeing a, a lot of Gulf War veteran claims coming through? Not anymore. Um, the the big bulk of work for the Gulf War veteran was following that um, law change that created the undiagnosed illness. Um, yes. That that was a monstrous amount of work. We we did a whole lot of work, and it was it was a struggle early on to understand the concept because raiders grew up understanding that if you don't have a diagnosis, you can't have service connection, and that was well embedded in everybody's circuitry. <laughs> so okay, Congress is saying now that we're going to grant a disability for an undiagnosed illness, ah, and trying to figure out just how to do that was challenging. It was. And it took years for VA's rules to evolve into some sort of orderly manner. And it took repeated training sessions to get everybody on board and, and to, the, to develop some consistency across the nation on how we're supposed to adjudicate those things. Um, so it sort of peaked. It peaked and then um, it sort of started trailing off as uh, VA did a couple of adjustments. One, one was in the examinations uh, to, to sort of specify specific examiners and sort of coach them up on what we're really looking for and how and why. And uh, I started uh, sort of getting consistency in the evidence, which started speeding the adjudications. Um, every now and then, you know, somebody comes back or somebody retires these days. Um, hard to believe it's been that long ago, but it was. Uh, somebody retires now, and 
and they think back and they have this ailment now. I don't quite understand it. Yeah, so, um, I'd say there's fewer of that. We had, uh, you know, some guys, gals retire from the military and make their initial claims. Um, they served in the Gulf. We'll have to make certain we consider um, some of the presumptions for diagnoses that are presumed and uh, some of the undiagnosed illnesses or muck me. That's the only way I can remember it. M-U-C-M-I. Muck me. Uh, Multi-system undiagnosed (laughs) chronic illness, you know. (laughs) But... um, I think that's, I'd have to describe that as having settled down some. Just like our uh, Vietnam vets and the uh, herbicide experience. It was a huge. Yeah, uh, and we still have the Blue Water Navy thing to come along. So, But, uh, Bill, we're out of time here, so if you want to give out your information, uh, and phone numbers, uh, people can contact you or Dr. Bash and uh, in case they need to get a hold of you. Oh, Bill dropped again. Well, that's okay, Drew. Anybody needs to get a hold of Bill. Anybody needs to get a hold of Bill, they can go ahead and uh, you contact uh, Dr. Bash at doctor.com. It's uh, D-R-B-A-S-H at D-O-C-T-R dot com, and he can put you in contact with Bill, and you can work with him. But they're kind of a team okay. of stuff, so that would be probably easy way to get a hold of him. Okay. That sounds yeah. good. I hope you folks enjoyed yeah. this show. Oh, wait, here's Bill. Yeah. It dropped again. <laughs> yes, I have no okay. idea why that happened. Well, John, no, no, no. give your information out, so uh, yeah. you're good. You're good to go. Thanks for coming on, Bill. Yeah. It's been a great show. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for hosting. I told you're him to contact. I, I told him. I told him to contact Doctor Bash's email address and things like that. He, right. He, he, he can get in touch with you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Thank you for coming right, on partners. Bill. Your breath of fresh air. Yeah, oh, I we'll do this. We'll do this again soon. Sure. Mug mesh. No problem. I learned a new <laughs> word. Mug mesh. Is that right, Bill? Mug mesh. <laughs> muck me. Oh, muck me. No, I learned a new <laughs> muck me. I learned a new <laughs> word <laughs> called <laughs> Indonesia. That's a good word. And- <laughs> M U C M I fucked me. <laughs> okay. Well, I never get it right anyway. <laughs> no wonder I get boxed all the time. <laughs> I learned the word that I used a lot back when I was working with the Japanese. We have a lot of people that didn't want to relate to change too much and they were real they were real stubborn on certain things they wanted to do in the quality world. I learned a new word uh-huh. called Ishiatama. Ishiatama. That is the Japanese really? term for hard-headed, stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> ah. 
<laughs> now, muck me is medically unexplained chronic multi-system illness. <laughs> well, I'll remember that. <laughs> if you're forgetting that kind of one part four, part two, do. D one I <laughs> kind of reminds me of some words in the core like snafu and things like that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we just, as long as we don't uh, tell anybody what that stands for, we're all right. <laughs> yeah. We have to be good. Though. We can't do that. Like you're coming your radio host. <laughs> CC is what's name. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, right. Great, Thanks guys. for coming on, man. We appreciate it. I enjoy it so much. Uh, be careful, can man. Help some folks. <laughs> I promise. All right. Be careful. <laughs> Break anything else. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, goodbye. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio Show, sponsored by Hadit.com. All opinions expressed here are the opinions of the individuals appearing on the show and are not the opinions of Hadit.com or Blog Talk Radio. Tune in next time for another edition of Hadit.com Blog Talk Radio and the Ask Basher Show. Bye.